The Old Testament lesson is in Exodus chapter 19. And then if you want to turn ahead to the New Testament lesson, it's also found in 1 Peter chapter 2. So Exodus 19 and 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to focus our attention on 1 Peter 2, but Exodus 19 is, is actually a good background for this as it begins that theme that we're going to talk about. We're not going to talk about one of the solas, this evening, but another, uh, another rallying cry, I guess you could say, of the Reformers, another truth that they saw in Scripture, and that is that we are to be a kingdom of priests. And that phrase actually comes from Exodus 19. Now, Exodus 19 is uh, right after Israel has been brought out of Egypt. They have, they have uh, come through the Red Sea, and they are on their way to Mount Sinai, and they finally get to Sinai, and camp there, and God is about to, to give them the Torah, to give them his, his covenant words, how they are to live. But before he does that, he first talks about his vision for them, who they are to be as a people. And that's what I want to focus on, and then we'll pick up uh, Peter talking about that very same vision toward the end of the Bible. But let's look at chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. Of Exodus. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you're to tell to the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then if you would turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter talks about the very same themes when he talks about the church, reflecting on what his Lord Jesus taught him as one of his disciples. 1 Peter chapter 2, familiar passage. Maybe we've read it so much we don't catch the link to the Old Testament and the bigger vision that God has for us as a church. Peter uses a couple of different images uh, for the church here that we'll talk about. And the first is the uh, stone built on the living stone or the cornerstone who is Jesus. So let's pick it up. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 12. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And again, both in verse 5 and then in verse 9, Peter talks about that, that uh, kingdom of priests, that priesthood. So let's spend a little time focusing on that Reformation theme, but let's first come to God in prayer. Holy Spirit, as you inspired the words that are written in Exodus 19 and 1 Peter 2, indeed throughout the entire scriptures, but as you also, we believe, inspired those reformers many years ago to focus their attention on Scripture and not necessarily the traditions of the church and to get back to your word and, and re-explore the truths of your word and, and right theology. We pray that now you would, would take those words and that you would inspire them to us, that you would help us to, to understand what it means to be reformed people, what it means to be a kingdom of priests, and that you might give us marching orders as to what we are to do next with that in our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I understand that the word priest might be unsettling for some people. If one is secular, priest is entirely irrelevant. If one is Protestant, it seems too Catholic. If one is a lay person, it might seem beyond me. The word priest perhaps evokes a picture of otherworldliness in our culture today. All that, in spite of what the word meant in the time of the Reformers in Latin, pontifex, the Latin word for priest actually reveals a, a powerful, practical, positive purpose. Literally, pontifex means bridge builder. Bridge builder. In other words, the priesthood was always to, meant to be something practical, to help us build a bridge, to help us cross over, to get from here to there, especially in terms of our relationship with God. I think this is one of the reasons the priesthood was one of the fighting words of the Reformation. The Reformers recognized that the priesthood had become a barricade to God rather than a bridge. The, the Catholic Church of the day and the priests' oppressive control over the laity resulted in manipulation, whether it was from keeping the liturgy and keeping the Bible in Latin or in Greek and Hebrew so that the people didn't understand it, or whether it was in things like the sales of indulgences, which promised forgiveness, and so somehow you could actually buy your forgiveness or buy the forgiveness for your ancestors. So the Reformers called every believer to an awareness of his or her own priestly role before God. They called it the priesthood of the believer. 
the priesthood of the believer. This points to the privilege of access to God on a personal level because in Christ there is no need for a human mediator. There is no need for a human priest. The idea of being bridge-building priests than all of us was seen as a personal practical privilege. And I think if there's a need for reformation in the church today, it might be toward the rediscovery of the believer's priestly ministry, particularly the, the spiritual gifts that God gives us to do such ministry. Well, the Reformation was based on getting back to the Bible, and so we're, gonna, we're doing that this evening because we can trace this idea throughout the Bible from beginning to end. God's original plan, as we see it in Exodus 19, is that as the the people of Israel gathered at Mount Sinai after the Exodus, he, he reveals to them how he wants them to live as his nation. He says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, God's plan for Israel was that they were to be a kingdom of priests, that they were to be the priests. He he called them to be holy, consecrated, set apart for their priestly task, which was to be a nation of spiritual leaders serving as priests to who? to the rest of the world, to their community. As bridge builders, they were to lead the nations in worship of the Creator God. But while Moses was receiving these instructions from God on the mount, Israel below was ruining God's plan. Moses, with Moses apparently dead, for he'd been gone so long, 40 days and 40 nights, they decided to make their own God the golden calf. When Moses returned and coming down the mountain, where we know famously that he, he smashed the tablets as if Israel had already smashed the covenant that God had just given them, which in many ways they had. But he also confronted the people and called them to repent. In in chapter 32, we read, Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever's for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. So sadly, only one tribe answers Moses' call, Who's on the Lord's side? And as a result of Levi's response, the Levites alone now became the priests of Israel. It was intended that all of Israel be priests. The whole nation, intended by God to be a globe-serving priesthood, is now reduced to a sinning nation, Barely able to sustain its own spiritual life, much less calling the other nations to God. They became self-serving rather than a priestly blessing to the nations that God had called them to be in his covenant already with Abraham. And so we have to always ask the question and, and have that caution. 
Do, do we ever fall into that grave error of Israel? Have we become a self-serving people who need priests to minister to us rather than being priests to our community? Well, in essence, God gave up on the Old Testament people ever being priests. He would resurrect his plan through his resurrected son. When the right time came, God sent a new priest to change the system, to become the final high priest, and to call people back to their God-given role. The author to the Hebrews writes a lot about this as he's writing to Jewish Christians who are trying to figure out how the Old Testament fits in with Jesus, how their, their temple systems, their sacrificial systems, the priesthood, and the like, fits now with following Jesus. And he speaks a lot about Jesus as the new high priest. I'm going to pick out a part of Hebrews 4 and 5 to read. At the end of Hebrews 4, we, he writes, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So he's talking about we can now enter into God's presence through Jesus, our high priest. And then he starts in chapter 5 by talking about the high priests of the Old Testament. He says, Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. And then he says, now let's look at Jesus Christ as a priest. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I've become your father. And in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death and was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Jesus is referred to as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Just a little aside that it's kind of a mysterious character who shows up in Abraham's life, ministers to Abraham. Uh, we're told that he comes from Salem, which is actually the early name for Jerusalem. So he comes from Jerusalem. He ministers to Abraham. Abraham tithes to God through Melchizedek, and then Melchizedek appears, disappears. And the sages said, well, Melchizedek obviously wasn't a priest from the tribe of, of Levi and from the family of Aaron. In fact, we don't know where he came from. We don't even know if he ever was actually just born or if he's just always been there. And then he disappeared and we haven't heard anything of him, so he must be living forever. And so they, they had this picture of Melchizedek as kind of this, this priest that came directly from God. 
and, and was a priest forever. And the author of Hebrews uses that idea of Melchizedek and said, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Came straight from the Father and is the high priest forever. But then Jesus does something interesting. He gathered a group of unlikely lay people around him called disciples, and he trained them to be priests. And they in turn trained others, forming the church. That's what discipleship is about in a sense. If you think about it in terms of the kingdom of priests, Jesus trained the disciples to be priests, to minister to others, and they trained in turn others, and they continued to make disciples, train priests in order to be a royal priesthood. One of those disciples put into words what the Lord taught him, 1 Peter chapter 2, and he gives us some images uh, for the church. Now, there's a lot of images in the Bible for the church. The first one Peter speaks of is the church as a temple, a temple of stones built on Christ the torner stone. And all of the stones, all of the people are important for the structure of the church. Just as in the temple, if you were missing some stones, it would affect the structure. In the same way, if people are missing from the church, it affects us. It affects the structure of the church. So we are a temple of stones, and we need all the stones built up together. In a sense, that's kind of like what Paul talks about although he uses a different image, when he talks about the church being the body of Christ. Each body part or church member, individually gifted, individually tasked to do something in the body, needs to coordinate with the other members under the direction of Christ the head. And again, like stones being missing from the temple, if, if body parts are missing, the body doesn't function right. We all need each other. We all need to be coordinated together. Well, to these ideas, both of them important for understanding people as priests, Peter adds the idea of being a holy or royal priesthood. He uses both descriptors of priesthood. In verse 5, he talks about a holy priesthood. In verse 9, a royal priesthood. What do those mean? Well, to be holy means to be set apart for God to God for his service. I liken it to the, the different things in the, in the temple. I mean, just, yeah, you see the priests and you say, okay, they're holy, and you think of them as being pious or, or whatever. But, but think about the other things that are called holy in the temple. The, the table is sh- for the showbread or the silver goblets were also called holy. It's not that they were pious. It's just that they were set apart for God's use and could not be used for anything else but God. That's what holy means, to be set apart. So you couldn't borrow the table of, of showbread for your family garage sale or silver goblets for your family picnic. It was, they were to be dedicated to God's use and, and, and God alone. That's what it means for us to be holy. We are not to give ourselves to be used by the world or even be self-serving But we are holy to God. We are holy to be used by God. And then to be royal or kingly, that kingdom of priests idea, simply means to act on behalf of the king. We act on behalf of the king as ambassadors. 
So the priesthood of all believers is a recovery of the original plan of God for us to be a kingdom of priests. But what does that look like for us today? Well, it's a call to be a God-serving church. And I think that call is still to be realized. It's not just for the Reformation, the 1500s, 1600s, but it's still to be realized today. Its fulfillment hinges on, on our willingness to let a Reformation transform our thinking, our lifestyle as a church and individual believers, and it affects several areas. First of all, our personal relationship with God. What it means is, and what it reminds us of, is we don't need another human being, a priest, to be a liaison between us and God. Through Jesus Christ, we have direct access. We can pray to him, listen to his will, have guidance and direction for our lives, repent and find forgiveness. Jesus Christ is the ultimate priest, the ultimate bridge builder, who has given us an indestructible bridge to the Father. But it also affects our worship. Priests are praisers. I don't know if you noticed that, but in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, the Levites and the priests were the worshipers. They were the ones who led worship. They were the ones who played the trumpets. They were the ones who sang in the, in the choir. They were the ones who, who brought sacrifices. They were the ones who prayed for the people and offered incense. They were the worshipers. Priests are praisers who perform acts of worship before God. And therefore, if we're a kingdom of priests, we are all worshipers. We are all worshipers. No one person, such as a pastor, is the performer in worship. Everyone is a performer, and God is our audience. Everyone is a performer of worship, and God is our audience. So we're all called to be involved in offering our worship, whether from the platform or the pews. We're all responsible for our worship. And like Israel, we're called to lead others then into the worship of the Creator God as well. Bringing other nations to God is each priest's responsibility. And it also affects our service to and for God. God has given every priest, each one of us, spiritual gifts to help us do priestly ministry. Not, not the fruit of the Spirit that we're talking about in the morning. Those are character traits with this, that come from a Spirit-filled life. But gifts of the Spirit, specific gifts that can be used for the building up of the church. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's the gift of preaching or teaching. Maybe it's the gift of music. Maybe it's the gift of, of service. Maybe it's the gift of giving, a gift of leadership. There's all kinds of different gifts that God has given. And he's given one or two or three main gifts to every person that's a believer. They are spiritual gifts to help us do our priestly ministry. We all have gifts, so we all have a ministry. Now, if we say God hasn't given us any spiritual gifts, that's not humility. That's calling God a liar. The question is whether we are using our God-given gifts or hiding them like the servant in Jesus' parable hid his talent. Using our gifts for God's glory in the church is a sacred responsibility as priests. The ministry of the church then belongs to the measure, to the members, excuse me. And that's not just a Reformation principle, that's a biblical principle. And so our challenge today as God's kingdom of priests is to avoid the sin and failure of Israel and to be God-serving priests rather than self-serving people. 
to be God-serving priests rather than self-serving people. So we need to ask ourselves, based on the two ways that Peter describes the priesthood, are we living as a holy priesthood, set apart to serve God, rather than to serve ourselves or what the world wants us to do? And are we a royal priesthood, leading people in our world to bow before the king? Let's come to God in prayer. Father God, we pray that you would allow us, even as you wanted your people in the Old Testament to be your priests, to to bridge the gap between you and the people of our world, we pray that you might use us individually and as a church to do so, that we might be faithful in doing so, that we might have our eyes open to the spiritual gifts that you give us and that we might be willing to use them boldly for your service. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.